Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides on the quest to RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. In our main podcast episodes, we discuss D&D 5e's core rules and ever-expanding content, while also showcasing other RPG systems and bringing you fresh, new projects from indie content creators. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world you're playing in, because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. What if I told you there's a world where not only are monsters like vampires and werewolves real, but they have rights just like you and me. And in this world, there exists a secret government organization dedicated to keeping you safe and making sure they follow the rules. Welcome to Anarium a Monster of the Week podcast. Each episode, you will follow the story of three agents of Anarium, played by Rob Hamilton, Taylor Catron, and Cameron Bain, as they navigate through the treacherous world that Game Master Samuel Herbert has imagined for them. Tune in on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever your preferred podcast platform is. It's dangerous out there, folks. So, remember, leave the monster hunting to us. The professionals. Welcome everybody to today's episode. This has been a long delayed and much heralded and anticipated recording session. I know I, for one, am am quite glad to finally be sitting down with these two fine gentlemen on the other side of my digital recording to do our annual questions from the audience episode. So Mr. Myers, Mr. Miller, how are you this fine evening? I hope you're doing well. Doing quite well. I'm also doing well, having a fantastic day and excited to be talking to you all. It was a wonderful role-playing weekend. Enjoyed running the one crazy night in Waterdeep one shot for the Patreons. That was a good time. That was a good time. Fantastic adventure, by the way. That was a lot of fun. It was, it was very nice to play at your table. I'm not sure. I'm. I know you and I have played on the same side before, but I'm that not is sure the that first time you've been my player. Yeah. So that was a uh, that was nice to be able to sit back and actually only have to worry about my character. That was uh, that was very cool. So, yeah. All right. I, I was jealous of that game. I I wish I could have been able to go, but I had to prep for some other things that were going on. But yeah, that that sounds like a lot of fun. I can't yeah. wait to see it again yep. in other and as it continues to build yeah. towards future things. That, that will for sure appear on the uh, on our actual play side of things at some point in the near future. We were just talking bit. earlier about <laughs> we we were just talking earlier about how uh, how 
we have quite a backlog of actual play content and also more fantastic actual play content coming up really throughout the end of the year here. We've got some fantastic games coming up here. Can't wait to go ahead and showcase those. But none of that is what we're talking about tonight. We are doing our annual questions from the audience episode where we will be going through questions that have been submitted to us via email, via Twitter, via our Patreons, everything like that. Facebook, exactly. Pretty much anywhere that you could have left a comment, we have received comments. And we're going to go through all the questions here, or as many as we can get through in an hour. And then at the end, we're going to do a random drawing for one lucky question submitter. We'll get one of the uh, the infamous Tabletop Journeys prize packets, ergo helping me clear out my basement. So that's uh, with all the fun stuff I've got down there. Yeah, And I've got some really cool stuff this time around, so I'm really looking forward to this one. Anywho, so this evening, given the questions that we've got here, the way we're going to do this is the three of us are going to roll a d6, and then that will tell us which question is going to come up. And then whichever the three of us has the highest score on that d6 is going to go first. Uh, if there's a tie, we'll we'll figure it out. Gentlemen, That's I think... Conveniently, uh, there are exactly enough questions to make exactly three through 18. Yeah. All right. Here we are. My roll is a four. Five. Four. Okay, so Mr. Myers gets the question first, and it's question 13, and this comes from old friend of, of Lou Anika and mine, uh, I'm not sure you've ever met a friend, Rob Sargent, but I don't Rob, believe I have. Rob asks, uh, what is the best Star Wars tabletop role-playing game, and why is it the WEG Star Wars the role-playing game, second edition, D6 version? It's a doozy Fantastic. coming right out of the gate here, yeah. It is, and I already Our, know from our pre-conversation that we've got a couple of answers to this. Mm-hmm. The first one is going to be, and I'm trying to check the date, second edition, because I think, yep, I'm right. I have to go, I have to agree with him. And the reason that I have to specifically agree with Rob and say that, yes, Star Wars role-playing game, second edition, the D6 version, was the best Star Wars role-playing game. And the reason that I feel that way is because it's the only one that I've ever played. But we had an amazing time. Uh, friend of the show and Patreon, Marty Napier, ran that game. And I played a Wookiee who w- ripped people's Stormtroopers' arms off and beat them with them. Amazing. Uh, That's amazing. And we often went to a cantina similar to the Moss Eisley spaceport called the Technicolor Yawn. I love it. <laughs> the floor spun in different directions and people vomited on the regular. Fantastic. So I've got to go with Yes. That game rocked because we had great friends and a great time and an amazing campaign. It was a good. It was all around fun. But Josh, I think, has a different opinion. I do. So I, I do. Have a I do have opinion also. But all right, well, that was it, really, yeah, was it not? Did you not do a couple of those sessions at the Citadel? I don't recall all of the places that we played because I'm going to be honest. We played a lot of role playing games back then, and whether or not a game happened in my basement or Dustin's house or at the Citadel in the basement with Scott gets blurry. Ooh, or at Super 8 with Ian when he worked overnights there yeah, and we play there with him. Yeah, there are a couple sessions there too. Note to self, hire you some role players, all you late night hotel. We're a lot of fun. No one breaks in that place because we're all the gamers are collected. We'll keep you safe. All right, so which one is your preference, Luanico? I actually like the D20 Star Wars game. And here's why, much like Glenn, because that's the game I played most often. I played the WEG, the D6 one, at least once, probably twice. But it I think was you not... guessed it in the game with yeah, us when yeah. Marty was running it when you were down once. Yeah, and I, and I remember that. And I did have an bl- absolute blast, but 
the only time I played in a game that lasted multiple sessions where there was at least a campaign started, eventually I had to leave that particular game, as some games do, was a D20 game. D20 and the open game license when it was first starting was amazing. If you had an IP and you put it on that open game license, while there's a lot to be said for maybe not every system or IP or tone fits, that's probably accurate to some extent. The reality was it just brought a lot of people to the game and it allowed a lot of people to play without a lot of overhead. I walked in on a game, was able to play because I went there the same time every week for six weeks or whatever. I was able to play for a while in a campaign. And I remember that being fun. I liked the character I had. I played big surprise. It was a scoundrel of some kind, as one is wont to do. Off topic. I apologize for the interruption. You said the word scandal. scoundrel. The best Star Wars shirt I've ever seen in my life, bar none. My cousin-in-law, Harley's brother, owns it. And it's a custom-made shirt. I don't know where you could ever get one. But it's basically just a plain brown shirt with a silhouette print that's clearly Han Solo on it. And it just says scoundrel across the bottom. And it's perfect. Yeah. Love it. Sorry, continue. That is nice. That is nice. That that is my go-to Star Wars class or character archetype anyway whether it is a class in whatever version you're playing or not but those are the only two i've played the one i played the longest is the way i go there i have no ill will towards any of the other versions i just don't know them as well and it sounds like rob is saying get on that so yeah i'll I'll take note the other one that i will toss out there and i will only toss out briefly is the there is the game blaze in the dark which is a very much it's a game very reminiscent of Powered by the Apocalypse and its mechanics and the way that it's built with like runbooks and everything like that, like archetype-based runbooks. Blades in the Dark has a port into Star Wars called Scum and Villainy, and for, for title points alone, that one wins for me. But I think what is also pretty clear is that between the three of us, we clearly need to get some Star Wars game up here on this channel. So I think maybe that may be, uh, that may be an opportunity for the next year. Raise the shield here. Trek is next. I've already got one in the works with, uh, with Scott. Um, and that's they, a new system that just came yeah, out a little bit ago. Yeah, the new-ish, Modifius, yeah. but yeah. yeah, so, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. The last yep. Star Trek game we were running, I had a great time on. continuation of that storyline, it, it's aged up a few years. So the things that we didn't get to in yeah. that last one, we're going to get to in this one. And uh, I will say that we do have at least one superhero-themed AP coming up in the next few months also. Fantastic, because I was anyway. thinking we should play a Supers game at some point as well. Uh, we have not yet announced it, but... But there will be some superhero up on the channel in the next few months. So Love it. All right. Gentlemen, to your D6. It's a five for me. Oof. I should have murdered in advance. I got a one. All right. What'd you get, Luanika? An 11. An 11. Okay. Cool. If we both got a five, Luanika, I want you to roll again and see who goes first. I got three. Six. Go for it. So the question is, outside of Wizards of the Coast, what other companies do you guys enjoy playing? Ooh. Great question from Patreon supporter. So many. Mm, indeed, um, that's a tough one. I'm going to say Palladium for me. I have to go with the. With, I have to go with the girl I kept on the side as I was dancing. <laughs> that's <laughs> not the way that works. There, <laughs> and I was just talking with a good friend of mine, and he's going to be jumping up a Palladium Robotech game here in the new near future. He was tossing around Palladium Supers or Robotech, and. Uh, kind of asked me the question and I was very undecided because I wanted to do both, but yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to say Robotech. Nice. Cause he wants to take a break from D and D for a while. Watsy wait for yep. the evolution before he comes back to Watsy, but he still wants to play. So he's going to sure. go up on some palladium 
in the interim couple of years. Yep. I'm all up on that. And obviously yeah. the Dead Ring game that Eddie, who's visited the show before, is I gotta say Palladium, but Mad Ups to Power by the Apocalypse. I was just gonna say that's where I'm Mad gonna go is Powered by the Apocalypse. By yeah. The apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. It is definitely something I want to play more and not just on the show and for the show. I think I just want to play Powered by the Apocalypse games more yep. frequently. I think yep. if I want to play something that's outside of the standard genres, that's the kind of game that I want to do it in. Yeah. And so hey. That's I gave yeah. two answers there. I'm sorry, but that, that's okay. You did set up my answer, so that's okay because I'm absolutely with you on Powered by the Apocalypse. I think that's probably my favorite non D and D system. And calling Powered by the Apocalypse a system is not it's a misnomer anyway because there because it ports so easily into so many different types of games. But just the feel of a Powered by the Apocalypse game, the collaborative way that Powered by the Apocalypse games are built, is really appealing to me in general and i am finding myself bringing those kind of uh, those kind of tactics and those kind of stories and those kind of themes and everything like that to other games to go ahead and, and make them uh, live a little bit more and breathe a little bit better and everything like that but, i mean we had so much fun playing through the real thing port into powered by the apocalypse like i said we do have we do have another powered by the apocalypse game on the calendar already for this year too so that'll be fun but yeah i, I totally agree with you i love that system and I, I'm listening I, I, through an actual play of a Powered by the Apocalypse game yeah. currently that's just amazing. Yep. Kudos to that I, cast. We'll do more. I, with I just listened to one also. Yeah, it was a Monster of the Week, which is Powered by the Apocalypse too. So that's, yeah, it's a, just a ton of fun. So how about you, Glenn? Two didn't give me a whole lot of ground to go to, but <laughs> I would have had trouble answering this question regardless because I, I have two answers because, I don't know, I guess I have, we'll call it two ages or eons of role-playing in my life, periods of time. When I was younger, my go-to, aside from Dungeons and & Dragons and what is now WotC, definitely would have been Palladium. Because just looking at their product line, I've played so many of them. I've run and played a gazillion Rifts games. It's one of my favorite. Okay, fair enough. i got to go with Palladium overall because Rifts Same is my thing. favorite game outside of D&D. Because I can make anything in it. But I've played Rifts. I've played Heroes Unlimited, Ninjas and Super Spies, Recon. The game was so fucking bad. <laughs> we, it's a Vietnam era. It's a Vietnam era game. You're a squad so in the jungle. And yeah, we played that one a lot for a while. But I've also loved Paranoia, but that's the only title. And GURPS was great back then, too. And they had Gurps a gazillion different we had a good systems. Time with but now I'd have to lean Powered by the Apocalypse because I love the direction. I love the indie collaborative direction that gaming is going. So yep. I would stick with Powered by the Apocalypse or something similar for something that I, if I was going to learn a new system. And I've been thinking about it because I actually have yeah. powered by Apocalypse World, followed by yep. Dungeon World. I have Dungeon World. I've been reading yep. it for a while. But it's a mammoth book. It is a mammoth book. <laughs> for what's supposed I, I, to be an easy system, it's a mammoth book. Yeah. I will say, too, that so with all three of us going with Powered by the Apocalypse, I will make one other kind of like side comment. And that's also that one of the things that is most attractive to me right now learning new systems is rules-light systems. Absolutely. Uh, I'm thinking about like babies and broadswords i'm thinking mm -hmm. about action 12 cinema right Faye. so like super story Faye was and Faye hasn't come out just yet but that's going to be one of our next ap's that come out so mm -hmm. yeah that's story heavy rules light games and that's nothing against a game like against the dark master against the dark master was a tremendous amount of fun and Fantastic. huge on the story huge on Absolutely. the epic and same thing with aliens great yeah, the rules game. are yeah but the rules are thick the rules are heavy I think for me, it comes down to portability. Look, 
most of the yeah. people I play with are going to play D&D as the core game that they play. But every now and then we want to do something different. We don't want to take a whole campaign to learn a new system. We just want to play something immediately and have fun. Right. So and you don't want a giant investment either. So you can't go with another system that's got 75,000 books. You need exactly. something small. And and Rift is, it has a ton of books. So don't mm-hmm. give me, don't cross your feathers. There's a ton of books with Rift <laughs> or Palladium in general, but I've been buying them since 1988. So yeah. I've had them over the years. I haven't bought one. I buy one every couple of months, every, every six months, I probably pick up one or two, but yeah. because I already made that investment, it's not an investment now. It's just carrying on. Right. You don't have to reinvest. The upside there is if you want to roll out rifts, you can, especially in a live game. Digital becomes more complicated because you're the only one with copies. But even then, teaching that game to players, the rule set is complicated and time consuming. It will take several sessions before your players get comfortable with it when they're brand new. I found one shots at conventions, as long as you bring pre-gens, work well with riffs. It plays similar enough to D&D with modifications, obviously. I feel that, you. I'm just saying it ain't rules. Like. It, but it, it, it wasn't it's, rules, it's rules heavy. Heavier than Watsy, for sure. Yeah. The one last thing before we close this out and move on to the next die roll, I would just say is I find it amazing when I was thinking back about this question and as each of us answered, powered by the apocalypse being that strong second or the first response is that how many games have we played and made the statement one of the three of us or all of us that man this the role play is so great it feels like power by the apocalypse whenever we're describing great role play ability we always mention power by the apocalypse and i have nothing to do but to thank ward and piercy for bringing the real thing to our attention because that was my first power by the apocalypse game mine too I cannot imagine my role-playing life without having had that experience. Totally agree. It was probably the LARPest experience I'd ever had at a table. When you take Powered by the Apocalypse and look at it, or any really rules-light system, by making it super rules-light, you're basically simplifying the mechanics. So what you have left is role-play. So rules-light is a role-play game. Yeah. All right. And that's what we're into, because that's what we've evolved, evolved into as we've gotten older. Exactly. All right, gentlemen. Dice rolls. That's a four for me. Oh. So a five for Lewinika. What about you, Len? Three. So that would be... A 12. Excellent. And Lewinika, you get to go first again. And again, light question without much elaboration necessary or anything like that. What is your gamer origin story? And this one comes from, from somebody who, who is has been a great follower of the show. He comments on a lot of the stuff on Twitter. He comments on a lot of her stuff on Facebook. Really, uh, really, he's always there from listener David Rideout. Or Ridout, I think yeah, is how you yeah. David, yeah. thanks so much for, for the question. Thanks for uh, listening to the show and keeping us on our toes. Real quick, my gaming origin really started with the Boy Scouts. I was on a small camp out in Camp Massasoit when I was uh, living in on the South Shore of Boston. And we had a tenderfoot initiation. And after that was done, somebody broke out a role-playing game. And it was this thing called D. And I got to play for a minute i don't think we even finished the game because it was lights out at some point but i remember that experience being great fast forward about three four years and i had moved to a new town my my stepfather was in the navy trying to get to know people and then i turned around and somebody said hey you should play D with us and so i played my very first character who happened to be a ranger and who died in the first adventure but i was sold the description of how that went and how I was the last person in the party. It was a TPK, by the way. Last person in the party 
And as I was shot, the DM reveals that the person who shot me and killed me as I faded to black was my very own brother who was. And that that was the end of that particular adventure. The next time I played, one of the players was running the game and he and he said, I'll let you even play your same character and you can do whatever I said. Actually, I'm sorry. I was a fighter at first and he let me make it up a level two character. So I was a fighter ranger and I started leveling from ranger at that point. So I'm like being a fighter wasn't good enough. And since I got shot by a guy who used a bow and arrow, I was going to be a ranger and get him back. Yeah. And the campaign started from there. And that's really where my journey began. Yeah. It was literally a, I've got to solve this mystery and I've got to do this better. And I've been growing yeah. ever since then and how I've so, the way I play. Yeah. So I did not have the boy scout experience that you guys have, but my, my story starts very similarly, right? Where like a friend of mine in high school, it wasn't with Dungeons and Dragons. My first game was the old Warhammer fantasy game. And I can clearly remember the second edition hardcover book with the dwarf on the cover who was dual wielding axes and tattoos up and down and big orange mohawk. I can remember this character in my head very firmly. And it was basically, it was like a solo game. It was me and my friend was running the game, was kind of like the playing the Dungeon Master game. And we didn't know what the hell we were doing. Like we were just having, we were just like rolling dice and having fun and everything like that. But I was, I remember that feeling too of, like, nope, this is, this feels right. This is something that I want to do. I want to tell these stories. I want to play these games that are more than just like Monopoly or whatever. And then so pretty quickly after that, I got into a game, like a lunchtime game in middle and high school where again, we'd play for like 30 minutes a day, every single day. And it was a spell jammer campaign. I was playing a side again, back under, under AD and D second edition rules. And that game lasted for easy. Yeah, exactly. No, I dove right in. Exactly. And again, much to, much to my error because playing a psionic when you don't know what the hell you're doing is really tough, but there it is. That's what we were playing. And then when I got to college, I was voracious. I could not play. I could not, any game I could get my hands on, I was playing. So I was like, that's where I first got introduced to Shadowrun, which for a long time was my favorite system other than D&D. We All ran Shadowrun for a while, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. Shadowrun is so yeah, much fun. Good you times know. with yeah, Shadowrun. Yeah. So. How about uh, you, Glenn? For, my, for yeah. myself, I guess I count as a second-generation role player. My dad ran my first game when I was between 8 and 9. Maybe 10. It's a long time ago, though. So this would have been like 1980-ish. My dad picked it up in the Navy. He was a submariner. Let me rephrase that. He was a submariner, not a submariner, because they're not substandard mariners. They're not substandard anything. He'd hit me for that. Submariner. <laughs> and I don't remember exactly because it was a, a long time ago. But the impression that I remember is that one of his shipmates that worked the same shifts as he did on the sub brought a small game to play on Westpac. And so for like months underwater in a submarine, when the when he and the group were off together, they started playing D anD D, and he brought it home. It was the Dungeons and Dragons first basic set, and mm. it was the box set. And I used to, I still have one light blue D twenty that you had to color with a damn crayon because they didn't actually print them with That's numbers right. in them, just a dent. And that was my first ever game. I played a character called Silverleaf, who I loved and named every character Silverleaf for probably about six months. Amazing. And then he let me use it because after that, he moved up to advanced Dungeons and Dragons. It wasn't even first edition or second edition yet. It was just advanced. So I got the basic set to start playing with my friends. So at that point in that neighborhood, I had two friends that we were playing with. And we were, of course, swearing to each other that we rolled all 18s every time we made a character because, you know, mm-hmm. we're like 10. But that's where I started. And it just kind of 
grew from there. Scouts, it really took off with me. And when Leah and Juanika and I were on Scouts together with Marty Napier, we were running games on campouts on the regular. I mean, we played underneath a little cave overhang at Cochigan Rock in Norwich three or four times on campouts. And that's when we started okay. branching out, too. I mean, we played Paranoia. We played... That's when we... I, no, we didn't start Recon then. No, we recon started was Recon. Later. We were older. Yeah. We were in our later teens before we started. Later teens just on the... I think Paranoia is the only game we brought in at Scouts, but... Yeah. But yeah, that, that's where I started. So I called myself a second-generation gamer because my dad started about, oh, I don't know, two months before I did. Nice. But it was a great time. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. cool. And final piece of the story... During this, he suddenly yells in the middle of it when the goblins are attacking us, Briark! And my mom and my aunt Cynthia, who's actually just my mom's best friend, and some other kids were saying, were playing. And my mom freaked and jumped because she always did. But Aunt Cynthia fell out of her chair, and he was convinced that that was the goblin word for attack. And forever after that, because he started playing in my games as we got older, he would yell Briark when he was attacking whatever he was. But if you look in the monster manual under goblins, you'll see Briark! Which means we surrender. <laughs> it came up in the last D and D game that we played with Bun's dad. The last and game he ever played. Yeah, he, he ever played. He's not with us anymore. I lost him this year, but yeah, last game he ever played. Last I actually did at that table. It was amazing fun. Got to sit shoulder to shoulder with him. Him playing a dwarf as he is wont to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had an absolute blast. It's so funny. I feel like the Bjark story came up last year in the questions from the audience episode because I remember the story about your aunt I've told uh, this, falling out of her chair. Yeah, yeah. We've talked yeah. about our origins before. Oh, uh, that's yeah, that's probably so yeah. This is a repeat story yep. for most yep. of us, but this way that's, it's dedicated it's still, into a question from a fan. Still absolutely yeah. fabulous. Yeah. All right, I'll gentlemen. Telling that story. Yeah, that was a great one. All right, we've got one more question before our break here, so let's roll our d6s. I've got a one. Six. One. As far as the tiers, they are basically groups of levels. One through five being tier one, six through 10 being tier two, 11 through 15 being tier three, and 16 through 20 being tier four. Now that is approximate. There are people who will say tier five is technically in tier two, tier 10 is tech. So you can get some wavering in there, but generally, Groups of bad guys or groups of creatures and monsters and challenges out of the monster manual and the DMG work best in in one tier or the other. They don't go throughout. Like you actually have to change what you're bringing to your table as a storyteller in order to keep the game exciting because of the way 5e characters advance. So yeah. we talk about that as a shorthand so we know what kind of monsters to bring or what level of action or level of power you can expect. In yeah. other games, it's point total. If you play Star Wars, any of the Fantasy Flight games, or if you play GURPS, you, or if you play Hero Clicks, you get a point total for your team that tells you the level of power of the game. That's just a shorthand for us to, yeah. to actually make that decision. So yeah, that's and I think you're pointing by that. Part of that also, though, just to add a little bit more on there in terms of how 5e tends to rank it for those four tiers. Four tier is like local heroes, right? So that's your small time guy. You just started out. You're making your reputation. Tier two is heroes of the realm. So you may not be the big, the biggest, baddest hero of the realm, but you're one of the go-to guys when the realm's in trouble by that point. 
Tier three, you're masters of the realm. Like you are the champions of the place that you're from. Tier four, you're masters of the world. You are now world powers. So that's another way to break it down. Yeah. And I think that the the one thing that I want to point out too is that it isn't an exact line, right? There are There is some discussion about where the breakup of the tiers are. And so let's just go ahead. And I'm not going to belabor that point because it it can get very like stuck in minutia. But if you look at like the difference between tier one and tier two, there's some people that say that tier one ends at fourth level. There are some that say that tier one ends at fifth level. And basically the difference is, does it end at fourth level when you get your first, when most players get their first feat or their second feat, if they take one at character generation, but when they get their fourth level feat. Is that the end of tier one, or is it the is it does tier one end basically after you get third level spells? And so it really depends on the power dynamic of the party that you're dealing with and everything like that. But it's in that area, and so that's very much a shorthand for uh, for general progression of your right. campaign. Which is also and, a chicken or the egg kind of thing because you know, right. levels one through four. Okay, I'm four. I'm level four all the way until I level to level five. So it's still right there in that same thing. It's just some people choose to split it one way and some the other. Yeah. I, and a lot of it has to do with narrative flow too. Sorry, not, not to go ahead and cut you off, Leonika, but a lot of it has mm. to do with narrative flow also. If you're planning a 20 level campaign, you think about your story pieces, right? So you've got your introduction to the story. That's your first few levels. You've got like the meat of your hero's journey, which is your second tier. You've got the tier when you are most likely to hit adversaries and failure and everything like that. That's your third tier. And then you've got your fourth tier when you ultimately become victorious and ultimately resolve whatever the story is. That's your fourth tier. So if you think about like your, your, uh, how novels are written or how myths are written or anything like that, they follow that same sort of pattern. You know, yeah, I could talk about how it appears in music all the time too, but that's a whole separate issue. But Yeah, I was going to say, I was just going to end the answer by talking about my own personal choice as a storyteller. I personally call them on the five. So for me, tier one ends when you complete five. And when you complete 10, tier two, 15, and then obviously the end of the game is 20, unless you're playing on in some homebrew manner. So that's just my personal choice. Yep. And I certainly structure my games, though it is harder to run tier one stuff at five than it is obviously at any other level. Okay. So things to bear in mind, it is less so when you talk tier two and tier three, those blend a little easier. But I think when you're playing fourth level or playing fifth level, it is harder to challenge a fifth level character with that lower level, that lower geared stuff yeah yeah i don't think fifth level should personally i don't think fifth level should be included in tier one because of the addition of third level spells that changes the game enough that most of your tier one mobs will just become charcoal briquettes yeah when you can get fireball right yeah Um, so at that point you really that that kind of really signifies the power change for me i always do five all right so we're gonna take a little break here but more importantly you're gonna be hearing an important message we our kickstarter is currently running so if you are interested in getting in on uh, on the Kickstarter, information on how to go ahead and do that is coming up coming up next year. So we'll see you in a minute. Hello, Traveler. Welcome. I have many stories to share with you of my diverse travels through the multiverse. Do you enjoy political intrigue? How about tales of mysterious magic? Does your heart yearn for high adventure? Or do you hear the call of the wild? 
the hosts of the Tabletop Journeys podcast to bring you their latest book, Heroic Subclasses of the Multiverse, available now on Kickstarter. Go to www.ttjourneys.com slash kickstarter and help us bring you these amazing subclasses, plus backgrounds, feats, adventures, and more. Fair time, friends, for legends await. Now we're going to continue on with Benito's question about how we use the tiers and how the tiers come into our game. Who had the, since you had the initiative last time, Larry and Lee, when you go, why don't the three of us roll a d6 again so you can stay on into this one? Mostly because I haven't had a chance to go first yet. Y'all gonna hate me. Six. Oh my goodness. All right. Go ahead. So the question is, you guys discuss tiers a lot. Do you guys have a tier you normally play to, and how many players is your table size? So my answer to this is twofold. I guess I normally play, like many other people, somewhere to tier two, and that's where campaigns tend to end. Yep. Certainly when I played my last Palladium campaign, that's where it ended right around tier two. That was a player issue kind of group, had some challenges. So we paused, but my current D&D campaign is currently in tier, about to head into tier four. And that group actually played a full tier length or five levels as zero level characters. So in effect, it's one of the longest running campaigns I've ever ran. We've been playing for 19 total levels at this point with that campaign group. And that core group is, is the same. There are a few people who've come and left the group, but that core group is the same. That's my Land of 18Cs Barstock Chronicles game. Whatever I used to do is has been changing over the past year or so. I've been very interested in running 5e to level 20. Part of it is a thumb to the nose of everybody at Watsi who thinks nobody plays to those levels. I want to play to those levels. And I am enjoying the challenge of finding ways to make the game fun and challenging at those higher levels, because that is different. It is completely different. Yeah. I think that for me, lately, I have been running a lot of the, the Patreon AP, that, that chapter that, I've, that I'm running, the Arch Enemies line, is the first long-term progressive campaign that I've run in a while. I've been doing a lot of one-shot and single episode games and stuff like that. Even my own tabletop game only made it, boy, it was still in tier, it was at the end of tier one when, uh, when basically COVID hit and we had to, we want to, could make the virtual jump and everything like that. So I certainly don't do a lot of tiered stuff. I, I find myself doing a lot of like episodic and chapter kind of stuff with the exception of the Patreon actual play, which is, which has been nice to continue to build that story going forward. But even that is going to reach its logical conclusion, probably just, I think if we did the math out right, it's like around level 11 or so, 11 or 12, which, you know, for, again, from talking from like a, a conceptual tier, uh, we're not going to enter tier three, right? we're not going to enter a new phase of the game, we're going to wrap up phase two. And then what happens to those characters and what happens to that story after that? And that's a really good question that I don't necessarily know that I've got the answer to. I don't know if that's if we're going to continue a game with those characters or not, or write a write a continuing adventure for them or what. But I know that one for sure will probably make it through Tier 2, and that's about it. What about you, Glenn? So I'd like to say that I plan to play all the way through 20 every time, but I don't. And I get why a lot of people don't. 
I want to. And I love the fact that we at Tabletop Journeys are challenging ourselves to come up with more content and more stories that can be played at those higher levels. That's something that we talk about off air a lot Uh uh, because that's where we want to go. If the game's got the ability, we want to make it fun and we want to use it. And But the challenge is, and I get it, once you get to those kinds of power levels, designing encounters to challenge your players without making them huge and complicated that it takes an entire session to unfold one single combat encounter, it's harder to write plot as a storyteller for for campaigns of that level, too. It's not so bad when you're talking about a bunch of guys running around saving the kingdom. But when you're trying to write a new story for the Avengers every session, it gets tough. That's why looking at all the other separate movies in between instead of throwing in. There's not eight Avengers movies by now. There's a small number. It's a lot to write a plot line that's going to be that vast and that encompassing. But I'm up to the challenge. So that's where I'm headed. In reality... I played it between usually tier two to tier three when I have a campaign that runs to its natural conclusion. There might be, but if we get to tier three, it won't be all the way through tier three. It'll be to like 15 and it'll be like that last ultimate cataclysmic confrontation bit is what happens in tier three. And it'll take several sessions, but that's usually about where I'll wind up wrapping up is somewhere between 13 and 15. Cool. Always with the plan of I'm going to write something for these guys so they can play these characters again and we're going to get them to 20, but then it never happens. So, yep. Now, mind you, that's from 15, 20 years ago when I used to play. I haven't had time to run a game that long since I started running (laughs) games again. Yeah. That's the bigger thing. That's the bigger thing is that I think that all three of us are at a life stage where we are not sitting down every Saturday for six hours to run a game anymore. And that has had a that there is a price that is paid for not being able to do that. And it's in the longevity of campaigns and in 10 seconds or less normal, because the other part of Benito's question, what's your normal party size? So Glenn, you start. I would love it if I could play with five players. Yep. Four they say is the ideal size, but I think four makes it hard to make a a fully balanced, powerful party. That's going to do well and perform well in most situations. I think five is ideal. Six is okay. Once I get past that, it's going to delay the game and slow down the table. I will play with more and often play with eight, but I'd really like five or six. Mr. Miller? I actually prefer six to eight. And the primary reason for that is because I try for the longer term campaigns, there are going to be sessions where individuals can't make it. Yep. So if individuals can't make it, you play with six to eight, you play with about six to eight one or two people miss a session, you can roll on and keep playing. When you get down to the fours and fives, one or two people are missing. You're looking at what's my filling game going to be for the people who actually made it to the table. And while those filling games can be, that tends to, when it happens a few times in a row, be the death knell for a campaign. So I like the larger party because it helps keep the campaign long flexibility. That's exactly why my, the two long-term campaigns I have, continue to go because they've been that long and I've had people enter and leave the campaigns at various times or miss an episode or three here or there, but I've been able to continue keeping things moving because of the larger party size. If I were at four, I doubt either campaign would have made it this long. Yeah. That flexibility, that's a really key point because I always thought that six was the perfect number and it's six players at the table. I think that's a very fair point about how 
we live in a world where shit happens. And so sometimes one or two people can't make it. And I always found that I want six people who can be there every time, but having eight with a flexibility of we can miss one or two and still continue on. There's some logic behind that. All right. Your D6s, gentlemen. Let's see who else we can get here. That's a one for me. And me. Two. Two. All right. Well, you're still going first, aren't you? All righty. From friend of the show, Zach Applewhite from Applewhite Games, former sponsor of the show, if I remember correctly. Which came first, the dragon or the egg? As I'm a person who eats eggs every single day, I'm going to go, I'm going to say the egg. I like it. I like it. Glenn, I'm going to kick it to you, but I'm going to give you a different question because I think that you have got, this is the question that you answered pre-show that Lewinika absolutely needs to hear the answer to this. So also from Zach Applewhite, where do baby gelatinous cubes come from? So Josh and I talked about this earlier, and my first answer was, if you need us to explain the birds and the bees to you, perhaps there's another podcast or two we could recommend for you. Of course, they're delivered by gelatinous storks. Which I said, we absolutely, in the new book that we're writing for the Kickstarter, we need to write up a stat block for a gelatinous stork. I think I think that, I'm not sure how we could make it work, but I'm sure that we can make it work somehow. Yeah. So My reality yeah. brain immediately kicked in and went, but I think a gelatinous mass is too dense to fly. And we said, it's magic. So we, gelatinous- I mean, bumblebees fly, hummingbirds fly, they're not supposed to be able to, so. Maybe gelatinous storks just ooze across the ground. Ooh, oh. carrying that little square-shaped bundle of joy in front of them. <laughs> exactly. On a little pseudopod, like, mm-hmm. exactly. Like a snail antenna? I love it. And I will, so for my turn here, I will oh. take... Oh, Uh-oh. but they ooze along the roof of the dungeon so they can still drop them from above. <laughs> exactly. Oh, they defy gravity. Exactly. They can <laughs> climb. I love it. I, too, will take a question from, uh, from Mr. Applewhite. How many licks does it take to get to the center of an ooze? Obviously, anybody that ever watched the cartoon advertisement about how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop knows that the correct answer is one, three. But it can't be. I have to disagree because mm. after three, what comes See, is don't crunch. <laughs> it depends on how much armor they have within them. Fair point. They make- I'll make sure and cut my answer out for the bloopers because my answer is going to be <laughs> me. But that's <laughs> nice. Yeah. Should we tackle Apple White Games' last question as well no, or leave it to might- the roll turn? Might as well take all four of his questions. Because he, he did, he did have kind of the one. most fun questions. Another fun question. What does a mind flayer, what sound does a mind flayer make when it stubs its toe? And I have no idea. Because I don't really know what a mind flayer sounds like. None. They just scream psychic. Ooh. Oh, oh so like- is it one of those situations where if a mind flayer stubs its toe, you feel it and you scream? Exactly. I uh, like my tentacles. Fair enough. There might be a slapping tentacle noise. Maybe they can make some guttural gurgling too. Who's the guy? Not Bender. Who's the guy? Oh, hmm. Futurama. Uh huh. With the squiggly could, face. Yeah, that's um, exactly uh, what uh, Zoid. By the way, it starts with a Z. Yep. That's. Are, are either of you guys watching The Boys? I'm not currently. I've not oh, seen any of The Boys, but I plan to All start right. it at some point. If you were watching season three of The Boys, you would understand just how disgusting what Lee Winika just did is. So let's. Okay. Anybody else out there watching The Boys, you know what I'm talking about. So let's just let's move on. Yeah. Season yeah season three is a trip. Okay. All right. Let's let us carry on here. Roll your d6s, gentlemen. See if we can hit the hit hit the gaps in our list. Three. Uh, I got a one again. Six. So uh, that's a that's, ten. That's a 10. So we've already asked a question 10. So instead, we're going to go, we're going to drop down to a very interesting question. So this is 
Again, from Patreon Benito. Do you guys differentiate players with DM experience at your tables from the other players? You rolled the six, right? I did. Do you roll a dice that don't have that has something other than sixes on it? Because I think that's I like that fourth one. Okay. So it has sixes and twos. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Does it have any odd numbers? <laughs> Not so far. All right. So your answer. If by differentiate, you mean expect more of them? Sometimes. Generally, it really depends on the makeup of the table as a whole. If I have a lot of new players, I will definitely lean on my experienced DMs and storytellers to help the party along or help the player along with the mechanics in, in a positive way. Not tell them what to do, but if they have a question, help them find an answer kind of thing. But it doesn't come up that often, though I do play with a lot of new play, newer players. The first one, the Barstock Chronicles, has started with three brand new players, and I was actually new to 5e. So there were others who had played a lot of 5e that I leaned on heavily to help me with the mechanics as I was getting to learn the game. Uh, so I, I would say, yes, I differentiate in that way, but not really for plot or for story. I think the differentiator for me is who wants to be an active participant versus who wants to be a player who is just enjoying the game and they're, uh, I don't want to say along for the ride because it sounds pejorative and that's not what I mean, but there are some people who don't want the quote unquote starring role. Right. They, they want to have their coolness arc. when they have it. Exactly. They want a story arc. They want to shine. They want their moments. Some people want to be Jane on Firefly, one of my favorite characters from that show, but he was certainly not the star of that show though we had a couple episodes planted of jane looking at you where he absolutely was i would say the same thing about the Watch. hero of canton yeah i would say the same thing about almost that entire cast they all had episodes mm. and that was a short run series right out of 13 they each had some episode that was all them yeah. and then river finally got hers in the movie yeah and so i think of things like that things like Buffy and they're the same creator. I think about the the Nevers. I think about any kind of ensemble cast. And I think that these are the types of things. If you're looking at any kind of team show, not just the Whedonverse, but any kind of team show, you'll get that kind of setup. I want I think the differentiator for me is where people want to be. And that generally comes up in session zero just in the way they talk about it. But I also adapt to the way they play. And some people grow into making those changes and I make sure they have room to, for that growth of that change. If that's what they want. You took that answer a totally different direction than I read it. And I absolutely love, love your answer. All right, Glenn, how about you? It really was a great answer. So similarly, there are some ways that I do and some ways that I don't, and it depends on the situation in terms of arbitration at the table or fairness or equality among players, no difference. They get the same attention that everybody else does. But there are two caveats to that. Sometimes you do need to lean on your other DMs. As an example, in the one shot that I ran for Drinking and Dragons, I had a player playing their first game in 5e who hadn't played in years. So before everybody else got there, I had them reading the basics of a turn in combat. And then after that, when I found out I had a DM, I said, hey, would you mind sitting beside her so that if she has questions or she's struggling with her character, she, you can help her out so that I can stay in running the session unless you all need me, that kind of thing. And he agreed and he was awesome and the game was great. So 
sometimes I'll lean on them if I need them in particular. And like Leonique was saying, when you have an experienced players, you can pair them up to get some help at the table without having to stop the game between turns. But the other part, and this I'm going to say can be a differentiation from the DMs themselves, is they tend to differentiate themselves. Not all do. Okay. Every DM out there will throw out their opinion when there's a rule rules question. <laughs> sure. We all will. And it's a fact, especially if there's a debate going on we'll throughout what we know. But a lot of them have trouble not always throwing out what they know when they're sitting in yeah, the players. No, that's very and fair. Sometimes they differentiate themselves by being a little bit overpowering to the players around them. And at that point, I have to, on my own, differentiate a little bit and have a separate side conversation asking them to tone it down. So there are different ways. You got, on the one hand, they can really help you. But on the other hand, if they have enough knowledge and love to share it and are like the spotlight because the DM always has the spotlight. We talk a lot and everybody else just has to listen. No matter what we say, if I don't stop, everybody else just has to wait. You bring that personality to the gaming seat, it makes it very distracting and difficult for the other players. So there's my answer. It's convoluted, but really, when Nikas was so complete, that's just my addition. Yep. I would say you're absolutely correct. That same drinking and dragons, my table, our tables were adjacent. I had another patron of the Citadel Game Shop who was sitting at my table, and he was absolutely brilliant without even having to have a conversation. I've gamed with Jeff a few times, various games. He was actually, he ran a session or two when I was first learning 5e. He was one of the DMs that was down there running games and playing in them and such. I learned from him, and then when I'm running my game, him at my table was, one, a great deal of fun. Gave me a sense of, hey, I've arrived, even though I've been doing this for a minute. But it gave me that sense that it was an enjoyable game for him. I love having DM DMs at my table. It helps me ramp up my game a little bit, to be honest with you. Totally. I absolutely agree with that last statement. Some of the players, rather, that I've had the chance to run with, specifically in the last year, I'm looking at Marty, I'm looking at you two. I'm looking at other strong storytellers. Adam's I, I have Adam has never actually sat at my table before and I am anticipating the day when I get to go ahead and run a game with him. And that's not true. Actually, I have run a LARP that he played in, but that's about it. And I was not that was maybe not the best LARP I've ever run on some level. So I appreciate his patience on that one. It was there's a whole story about why that game was perhaps less than stellar in some moments, but that's a separate issue altogether. But yeah, like Marty, by reputation alone in particular, like when I realized that he was going to be playing in the Patreon actual play game, I was like, oh, crap, I better have my stuff in gear because of the way that you two had talked about him. But like Benito, Patreon supporter Daniel, and a bunch of other people that have done a bunch of storytelling, Heather, a bunch of other storytellers that we've known for a very long time. It's not intimidating, but it is also, you need to make sure that, you're on, that you know what you're doing. And especially since we lean a lot towards collaborative world building too, though. Having those experienced world builders and story builders at your table can really help and experienced oh, so. players with things yeah. like that too. Because, hey, having DMs in your table, they're used to having to come up with stuff on their fly because how totally. often does the party do what you expect them to do? There are three questions in particular that I want to make sure that we get to on the episode here. Luanika has led off all night here, so I'm going to give you the first one. I want you to give me a one, a two, or a three. Uh, three. <laughs> all right. Uh, so this comes from a friend of the show. She's appeared on the show before. She appeared on this year's Women in the TTRPG space. Laura from Lucky Newt Games asked, was there ever a game you really enjoyed from a developer you didn't really like? And I think I know the answer here, but I 
I'm curious to see what your thoughts are. I don't actually have a developer that I don't like, I don't think. So this one's a complicated one for me to answer. There are a lot of games that I've really enjoyed that I'm not a fan of the of some of the things the company has chosen to do with the games. What do y'all got for a developer you don't like? Maybe I'll copy off of you. I've got one, Luminica. Do you have one? In general, I would say I have significant challenges with the way in which Kevin Symbiata runs Palladium. Yeah. I, I may be pronouncing it wrong. I don't know. I've heard it pronounced four or five different ways. So it is what it is. I, he wants to come on the show and correct us. He's welcome. <laughs> I'd love to talk to him about his game because I absolutely love his game. He is a, an incredible creative mind. I cannot stand the way he has blocked off his game content from development, from third-party development, from the open game license thing, from ways to help the game grow, from people creating for the game. His game has big challenges. And so my issues with him are business-wise, less than creative-wise. But yeah, so I would probably say that. But I don't know the guy. For all I know, he's a wonderful human being who just has a particular business bent that I categorically and fundamentally disagree with. Yeah. So the one that I'm going to toss out there is, again, this is a game that is near and dear to my heart because it's very much how Liu Anika and I met, and it's very much how Glenn and I played a bunch of Vampire the Masquerade mm. LARP style third edition back in the 90s. Good times. And I think that it is perfectly all right to recognize that White Wolf as a company at that time was maybe not right then, but certainly would grow to become pretty challenged, almost to the point of that the game itself would implode on itself. And especially when you start looking at like the warring factions between the One World by Night and the Camarilla live-action groups and everything like that, and how those groups behaved and interacted with both each other and within themselves, there was a lot of toxicity in that environment. There was a lot of toxicity in that hobby. There was a lot of toxicity in that company. And it seems that is that ship is writing itself. We'll see when the, when the next editions of uh, a vampire come out. Um, see if it's see if it's any good. So yeah, that's my answer. Glad you made it because I really enjoyed it then. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I don't have, have yeah. I, I don't have a producer a game producer that I don't specifically like, and I can tell you why it's part of how my brain works i'm that guy i know all the songs that i like when i hear them and if i really like them i know the song name but i can almost never tell you the artist if i like it that's good enough i don't tend to look into the person who made it sometimes which could be a problem but my brain doesn't automatically start absorbing that extra information yep never mind ignore my whole answer yep. no i don't really have any <laughs> produce any game producers that i'm not a, developers I, that i'm not a big fan of having known you for as many years as i know you I don't think you could have answered more truthfully than that. And I think there's a great amount of bliss in not knowing individuals behind the curtain sometimes. Yep. Because then you don't have to worry about when somebody says, oh, this person did this awful thing. It's I'm really sorry. That was absolutely awful. It has nothing to do with what I liked about this product. There's some beauty to that, right? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean once you know it, you don't have some decisions to make. Right. But no, Miss Rowling is pushing me to weigh a lot yep. of options. Yep. But there are the a lot of voices time. in the TTRPG space right now that are trying desperately to make the TTRPG space eat its own face. And yeah. so many people are trying to convince them to get bent. Yeah. What I can say to that is, at the very least, our memories, when you don't have that knowledge going in, 
yeah. can truly remain pure. There's yep. nothing that she that any creator is doing or saying behind the scenes today that yep. impacts your enjoyment of a product in the past right. until such time as you know it. And that doesn't change what you enjoyed. That just changes right. what you have to go going forward. There's sure. some bliss in that. There's some benefit in that. That's how I look at it. When people ask me, I mentioned Whedon earlier and actually cringed as I said the words because we know who he is. And I don't <laughs> right. want to get overly political about this, but does that mean I shouldn't enjoy Firefly or I shouldn't enjoy Alan Tudyk and the work he did there or the It's impossible for me not to. All of those are already... Angel. So moving on, trying to go ahead and save your own bacon, Lewini, odds or evens, please? Even. Evens, oh, do you have a favorite Sorry, indie game? So it's another question from Laura at Lucky New Games. Do you have a favorite indie game right now? That is so tough. Mm. We've played so many great ones in the last <laughs> we really, year we really alone. Have. Yeah. I'm going to rule out Aliens because I don't think Free League is truly indie anymore. And that's yeah, not I don't think we can call Free League indie. Yeah, That's not a slight. That's, thank you, sir. Thank you, people. You have elevated yourself. And I am so proud to have got to play the games that you've produced. I would, gosh, so much fun. Delay of game penalty. I'm stealing his turn. Yeah, I'm going to have to say against yeah. the Dark Master. That's a good call. Yeah. It was very much old school gaming yeah. as far as its level of crunch. But I really loved the character generation in that. Yeah. The role play was fantastic. And I want. There's so many other great indie games. Like the real thing, it, it, my my toss up was the real thing. Oh, no. no, you can't say two because that's mine. Yeah, I'm that not was my saying steal. two. I'm, Go, you did. You said the real thing. It's so hard. <laughs> Go ahead, Glenn. The real thing. By no, I can't even say by leaps and bounds. The real thing is was my favorite indie game that we have played, and yep. in the playtest that we've done, that's most of my most recent indie experience. I think I've worked in one other one that I've been learning on my own. Though there is another one in there that was a possible toss-up for it. Oh, but that last one we just did. Faye. Oh, Faye. Yeah. Was a mm. good time. Faye, Faye was fun, too. That was Faye a lot was, of fun. Faye was and Babies and Broadswords. And, yeah. and Action yeah. 12 Cinema, no, no shade there. No shade. And Action 12 Cinema was a great time as well. But the last, still three, the last three we did were amazing. Yep. So uh, I'm actually going to go off the show calendar for one uh, that has been a perpetual favorite of mine. It's something that I found shortly after we started doing the show, and it's kind of always been a favorite of mine. It's a game called The Quiet Year. And the Ooh, Quiet Year, it. it is fantastic. It you, is a um, it. a playing card based game where basically the whole point of it is that at the end of it, the world is going away. The world is ending, and you use the playing cards to determine how you get from where you are to the end of the world and how your characters make it through. And it's just, it is fantastic. And they do not need our accolades. They have won plenty of awards on their own, but The Quiet Year is really, having read the rules and looked through it, it's absolutely fabulous. So, You've talked about that game several times. It has been yeah. brought up by many of the indie creators we've talked to yes. as well. Definitely in great company. Yep. In good company. All right. I am finally going to get to lead off a question because I'm saving myself for last tonight. What games based on licensed IP do you enjoy the most and why? And I am absolutely going for Aliens on this one. I, the Aliens playthrough that we did of the Free League, ver Free League build of Aliens was 
much fun. And part of that was the people that we got to go ahead and play with. We had uh, Steve from from Dad's Nerdy Ambitions. We had Mike from 19 Hits the Dragon. I had you two. It was a fabulous group of people to go ahead and play with, fabulous game to go ahead and play through. But what was the most fun was the way that the system really encapsulated it really helped raise that feeling of horror throughout the game like with the mechanic where you've got your dice pool and you can push it to go ahead and really succeed but there are always going to be penalties to having to go ahead and push it i thought that for a slick system and a relatively light system with it had some complexity but the rules the mechanic itself was fairly light it really it built in that 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 terror of the dice sort of feeling like, oh man, this could go really badly right now, and I really don't know which way this is going to go. Please, dice gods, be gentle to me, kind of thing. So I thought that was really great. I'll let you two fight over who goes next. Let him take it. It would have to be probably either a Star Wars or, oh, nope, changed my mind, Robotech by Palladium <laughs> Games. Yeah. Damn you, you stole mine. Uh, I'm sure that's I why. Love- I loved Robotech and Robotech the fact that it was awful. compatible with Rifts was so hot because you could crash a Veritech fighter, even if you didn't get to keep it and just have your Cyclone as the only thing left. You, you run into a protoculture problem, but you can run around Rifts Earth in a Cyclone. Hot. So I'd have to go with Robotech. But I've really enjoyed Star Wars games. I've really enjoyed Star Trek games. And I want to try the Firefly role-playing game, but I have not. Yeah, that is supposedly excellent. The other one that I'm really looking forward to trying is that Free League just put out a game system to accompany the One Ring, um, and that also looks excellent. I have, I went and bought that game book. It's roughly fifteen thousand six hundred and twelve pages, so I have not. Roughly, I, it, it's it is. But it's it a beefy. A, it's a beefy tome. The Tolkien novel. I, I think that Tolkien may have been a contributing author to the book. That's you know that's yeah. It was. It's a. You gotta, you gotta admire their symmetry there. She's a beefy tome for sure. So, yeah, not rules light. No, who knows? Maybe, maybe, and maybe it is, but I doubt it. Maybe it's just, <laughs> maybe a hundred pages is just one song. It's a hundred pages of descriptions of food, exactly. All um, right, Mister Miller. So Glenn stole my number one, but I'm sure you have more. It's such a hard thing because my gaming shelf is littered with IP books that I never got to play because I couldn't get a party together, largely because. I couldn't get four people that had watched the series that were interested in playing. Stargate comes to mind. Farscape comes to mind. Both were D20 games that were freaking amazing. Battlestar Galactica, I have a, a D20 version of that. Babylon 5, there's a D20 version of that. There are so many great IPs out there. But if Robotech is taking off my slate, I would have to go Star Trek Last Unicorn Games. Just fantastic. Matt Koval worked on that book. Uh, worked on that series back in the day. Last Unicorn game built a Star Trek game that was amazing. And I played a lot of Star Trek games and I'm still working on Modiphius. So this is no shade towards the game. I haven't actually started reading in depth on yet, but we've had a lot going on. There have been so many other Star Trek games before Last Unicorn's game and at least one after Decipher whose wasn't bad, but it didn't capture the feel of Star Trek as I experienced it watching it on television for all these years. And I think that's the hardest thing about an IP game to do is to capture the feel. Something is going to make it feel like D&D in space or cops and robbers or some other system, but it doesn't feel like the show or the IP you're watching. I hear The Expanse does their game exceptionally well. 
got a mm-hmm. chance to look at that yet. But I hear great things. There's a couple of podcasts I've listened to two episodes on a Expanse actual play that were really good. Nice. But I would say definitely Star Trek and specifically Last Unicorn's game. The game I'm running, while it is going to be using the new Modiphius system, I will be using some lore and some details that basically started in my old campaign when I was running Last Unicorn Games. Cool. All right. In our last few minutes here, now we have the exciting... Oh, so first of all, before we carry on, so that question asked by uh, by Twitter follower JB Rabson, who I think also follows us on on uh, Facebook also, but so thank you very much, JB, for that. But without any further ado... I have put all the names of people who have asked questions, whether we were able to ask your question tonight on the air or not. And I'm, I have put them into the random name picker, and I'm going to push the big green button to figure out who wins our prize package. So, I have one more question I think we should cover. Ooh, okay. I think that we should all cover, because I think this one won't take too long. Looking at you, Lee Wanika. What is your most, oh, hells no, you did not just drop that on the board, 5e monster? Because I have one. Yeah, I have one. I. I'll let you guys go first because I'm not sure. I'll have to think about this one. Uh, beholders. Yeah, beholders are pretty great monsters. They Dustin really Holder, are. The Dustin Hendel beholderkin. It always yeah. comes down to the Hendelkin. So I used to play in a game in Dustin's house. I mentioned that earlier. And Dustin ran a game where we were the fists of Toril. And we were arrested all the time to make us do stuff that we didn't want to do. But whatever. <laughs> That's how you did it back then. And he misread or chose to deliberately misinterpret a severe legendary action for his beholder, and they could use every eye stock and every ability oh, at one round. And this oh. thing was eating us alive, literally, because Marty was inside it with his legs sticking out, stabbing him from the inside <laughs> while the rest of them are fighting him from the outside. That's Still the only place that's safe from the eye. I can that's imagine. exactly what Marty said, too. He's like, At least you can't get me with the disintegrate eye. That's actually that's genius, actually. All right, Mr. Miller, what about you? I would say the the realization that I was standing on a dragon horde, and I thought that was really good. We were confronting the great mistress of the dark. Basically, my party in a Ravenloft game was confronting the uh, dark leader of this realm of the undead, Alanis. This was Lady Silk. My team had the opportunity mm. to kill her. We're standing on this horde, and then she let it be known that we were not as secure in our position as we thought when the whole horde of gold started moving and rising up from this horde of gold was a freaking Dracolich. And I was like, you got to be freaking kidding me. I'm like, I looked and I'm like, not one of us is getting out of this bed. No, I no. thought we were done. I really thought we were done. That took some finagling. And actually, a few of us made it out of there alive. But we, yeah, there was, that was bad. That was bad. Yeah. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go much more generic. And honestly, I think Glenn Beholders are a fantastic answer. In general, I love aberrations. Just in general, like just in like conceptually, like I, I feel like anytime I make a character or make a new creature or something like that, they have a lot of kind of aberration style uh, kind of characteristics about them. You know, and it covers such a wide swath of creatures. But I think like Abel- like Abeleths in particular, I love you gotta love Illithids, Krakens, Lurkers, Mimics, Chokers. So many great creatures that kind of fit into that 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 category. Rust monsters. So I think that's as a category. And I think that in general it's because I like things that are a little weird and 
a little unnatural and a little kind of corrupted by their environment, use that corruption as a power, as a weapon. I think that's where my imagination tends to go with these. Nice. I just thought that was a really fun question. I'm yeah, glad it is you a fun all humored question. me yeah. and let us answer it. And that way we also answered one from Sheldon. because From Sheldon, absolutely. He sent, us, he sent us three, and that way we definitely answered one of his questions, but we're yeah, not going to have time because we're not going to have time to get to the other two. All right. I'm going to hit the big red button and uh, see who wins our prize package. So hold on one second ooh, here. Ooh, I hope it's me. Can't be you. You can't Damn win. it. You can't win. I'm sorry. All right. Let's see here. Can I win? You can't win either. He always picks himself. And Sheldon is our winner. You have won our tabletop role-playing game-themed prize package. So right after the episode airs here, I will be in touch with you to go ahead and work out how to get it to you. So we are right now starting the latest Patreon actual play. The first chapter came out on Tuesday. That's going to continue for a few more weeks here. And then next Friday, we do our deep dive into Journeys to the Radiant Citadel, the latest book from Wizards of the Coast. A fantastic book. We haven't recorded the episode yet, but boy, is this book good. It's really good. As Sadie and and Hannah Rose said several months ago when they were on the show, that they said that the book was very good. I did promise it was going to rock. I've only gotten through a piece of it thus far, but it does not disappoint. So we'll be back next week with that episode. But until then, thank you again for uh, contributing to questions from the audience episode. Uh, Sheldon, congratulations on the prize package. And uh, we love doing this. And it's just a ton of fun. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. We'll talk to you all next week. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Appreciate it. Have a great night. Good night, all. Later. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, at TT Journeys, by joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. And remember, if you want early access to all of our episodes, a chance to drop dice with your favorite hosts, and maybe even appear in one of our actual plays, you can join our Patreon to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. You're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible. We would appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays, and every Tuesday features our actual play episodes. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler along our path, we did you shade and sweet water.